We're going to be doing a, an introduction to the book of First Peter. The intention is that, that we'll go through First Peter and then go through Second Peter. And uh, the two books are significantly different. First uh, Peter, First Peter deals with uh, the suffering of a Christian primarily prior to the onslaught of Rome. And Second Peter deals with it after the onslaught of Rome. So, uh, uh, so we'll be uh, we'll be uh, we'll be looking at uh, we'll be looking at that from those standards. There's, I got a, I have some additional information beyond what is in your uh, in your notes that I I got to thinking about after I. It took me two days just to type those four pages. I'm really slow. So I understand. So I didn't go back and add it. So you can take notes or, or you can just let it stick in your head. Uh, but uh, uh, we've got some dates and things to, to bring some of this to light. Are you using the ESV? Yeah, I'm using the ESV at this point. I tend to change over uh, to the legacy with as Pastor Steve is. However, I needed one in large print, and they're not available till September 30th. It's already ordered, but I won't get it. Okay. <laughs> so anyway. So September 30th, you're switching over. Step to, uh, yeah, I'll be a, I'll be a few weeks late in the switch, but uh, I can't read that one we're selling here. <laughs> so. <laughs> so um, uh, that's this one. See, it's big print. I got big print. So anyway, anyway, we're uh, let's uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, this morning as we uh, as we come uh, together here together to to lift our voices in in praise to you to 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 offer our thanksgiving for your grace and the wonder of the salvation that you have provided for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. We, we are just so thankful and so at, at, at your mercy and your love and your grace toward us. And, and Father, we thank you that you and your sovereignty chose to reveal yourself to us through your written word. And we thank you for the Apostle Peter, for his, his service to you, uh, for the words that through your Holy Spirit, he penned for us uh, that we might study, we might grow, uh, we might be encouraged, and that we might be drawn closer to you, that we might worship you all the more and serve you all the better. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning when we come to the text, um, we're really not going into the massive test of, text of Scripture, but first, verse 1 gives us a, a wealth of information in reality. It, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Bithynia. Uh, it opens up by claiming it was written by Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's who. That's exactly who he says it is, and we'll we'll look through the some of the history and see that that is who it is. Peter is probably one of the best known characters in the New Testament. I didn't count this; I took somebody else's word for it. Uh, but the name Peter appears in the New Testament two hundred and ten times. Paul appears. Not even a close second. He's at 162. All of the other apostles combined are at 142. So Peter is prominent in the New Testament. And uh, he was prominent among the apostles. Um, 
just to, to give you a little bit of a, a, a hint of that, uh, of, of, his, of his prominence. But, uh, but Peter was a native of Bithynia. Uh, that's, where he was, uh, that's where he was born. It's on the south, uh, uh, excuse me, I keep wanting to say south. It's the north, eastern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, John 1.44 tells us that. Peter was married. We have no record that he had any children. We don't know that. That's not told to us in Scripture. But we do know that he was married and that he and his wife lived in Capernaum. Uh, Matthew 8, 5 and, and 14 uh, give us some backdrop into that. Uh, and he, uh, he was a fisherman by trade and had a fishing business along with his brother Andrew and his father Jonas. Um, and the, and, the, and uh, they, uh, they fished in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, back in 79, Kathy and I had the opportunity to travel to, uh, to, uh, 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 to Israel, and uh, uh, she wasn't able to, but uh, I went out on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and we came back, and they served us. Peter's fish, they called it. It's an ugly thing. But anyway, but anyway, but at any rate, uh, but at any rate, that's that's where he fished uh, is 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 on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, uh, we're told all of that in Matthew 16 and 17 and John 1, uh, 140. Uh, Andrew, his brother, we know was a disciple of John the Baptist. The text of Scripture tells us that specifically. Uh, it would appear from the text, although it doesn't say it explicitly, that Peter may have been also at least he hung around is <laughs> kind of what what I think uh, think we could say with with almost certainty it was and it was uh, uh, <clears throat> it was Peter and it was Andrew excuse me who introduced Peter uh, to uh, to uh, uh, to Jesus ultimately uh, when he uh, uh, became after Andrew first became a disciple of Jesus. John, uh, John one uh, forty one through forty two. It's at this point that Peter, whose given name is Simon, which is a shortened version of Simeon, which means God's God heard. Uh, uh, that was his Hebrew name. That was his given name. That was the name his parents gave to him. Uh, it was after. It was when Peter met Jesus. That his name was changed, where Peter gave him the name in Matthew. It's it's Cephas because that's the Aramaic name, uh, but it's it, in Greek it's Hebrew and it means a rock. That's that's what it means. And it was I think that it, and it becomes obvious that is prophetic of who Peter would become among the apostles. He becomes the rock. Early on, that's not the case with him. However. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Jesus called him to be a disciple of, uh, uh, and to follow him in four eight uh, in Matthew four eight through eighteen, and then he was eventually made one of the twelve uh, apostles, as as uh, Mark uh, three thirteen through fifteen and Luke uh, six twelve through uh, thirteen tell us. Uh, when you come to the list of apostles, and I've got them, all, the, them written down there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, Peter is always listed first. He's always the most prominent. He's always the, he, he became the leader of the apostolic band, uh, and he became certainly one of the leaders after the resurrection of Christ. Uh, but, uh, but, but here we see that uh, he, was, uh, he, uh, he, uh, he was always listed as first in all of these, in all these references. Um, 
for the next three years of his life, he will, he will, he will follow Jesus. He will, he will spend his life following him for the next three years during Jesus' ministry. He hears his preaching. He sees his, his teaching. He sees his, his healing ministry. All of the things that are going on, uh, on uh, uh, in and around the life of Jesus, Peter is a part of. He, he becomes one of the inner circle of John, and, along with John and James, uh, with Jesus, with the three closest of the apostles to him, and and uh, uh, and he spends and Jesus spends a great amount of time working with these men. So, so he uh, he uh, he is privileged by Jesus to attend uh, to go with him to the Mount of Transfiguration in in seventeen and Matthew seventeen one through five. Of course. This is a significant event because the glory of Christ actually breaks through at that point, and he he sees it. He's stunned by it and wants to build tabernacles because he thinks it's the coming, you know. But uh, but uh, 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 but he doesn't fully understand it. But uh, uh, he he sees that event. He he is a he's a witness to that event to that to the glory of that event. He also Jesus takes him with him when he goes to Jairus's house and raises his daughter. He sees him bring someone back from the dead. He, he sees he has that power. Uh, he also is with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he is one of the ones he takes uh, into the garden with him. The others waited really outside. And he was a witness of many of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, and he is a witness to the ascension of Jesus. Incidentally, all of those things qualify him as an apostle as you go through. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was called by Jesus personally. He was trained by Jesus personally. And he's a witness to the resurrection. All of those are marks of apostolic uh, uh, authority. Um, the name Simon is used several times uh, throughout Scripture. It's used in, in, a, in a neutral sense. That is, it, it, it says things like Simon's house. It speaks of Simon's mother-in-law. It speaks of uh, uh, Simon's business. It's just used that way. It's like, like if you would say, you drove by my house and you said, that's where John lives. It means nothing. It has no significance other than it's the house where I reside. Or Kathy resides. Or Michael. But anyway, that's, that's the idea here. It's, it's the, it was just used in a neutral sense. However, when Jesus uses the name, it takes on a very different significance. Uh, when it, Jesus uses the name, it's usually associated with failures in Peter's life. Uh, he refers to him as Simon when those things happen. I, I gave some examples here. Uh, for example, when Jesus, uh, Jesus confronts him, or excuse me, first of all, when Jesus uh, uh, is, uh, is uh, confronted by the tax collector about paying the temple tax, and, and Peter, uh, Peter steps in and decides he's going to be Jesus' spokesman and gives the answer for Jesus, which is wrong, um, Jesus corrects him. At that point, and the way he addresses him is Simon. It marked a failure. He called him Simon at that point. Um, that's in Matthew seventeen twenty four through twenty five. When Jesus confronts him at Gethsemane, when he's fallen asleep and he couldn't wait to keep watch with uh, with him, he he says to him then, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not? 
keep watch for one hour, Mark 14.37. He, he addresses him as Simon, another, another instance of failure. Um, in Luke 5, 1 through 11, uh, after a night of not catching any fish, Jesus uh, comes out and uses the boat, the fishing boat, as a platform to preach, and he preaches a sermon there uh, by the sea. And afterwards, he tells Simon to drop his net, or he tells Peter, whoever, Cephas, Cephas, I mean, uh, he says, drop your net. And uh, he tells him, why? There's no fish in this water. You know, he doesn't recognize uh, the full potential of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, says to him at that point, in that case, he calls him by both names. He calls him Simon Peter. And after the 12... uh, engage in a heated discussion of which one would be the greatest, Jesus confronts Peter with his coming failure, uh, where he will deny the Lord, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to shift you like wheat, Luke 22:33. The final instance of Jesus addressing Peter as Simon is found after the resurrection when Jesus asks asks Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Corresponding to his three denials. He he asks him that and he he addresses him. He addresses him as Simon then because of that failure. And Peter answers him three times in the affirmative. Jesus uses Simon to bring attention uh, to, to Peter's behavior. That behavior when he's not walking in faith, but is reverting back to the old practices before meeting Jesus. Some commentators say before regenerative, before he's regenerative, regenerated. But uh, I tend to believe, well, that had to have happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, because he's the one that does the regenerating. But nevertheless, he was in the presence of deity, and uh, and yet he uh, he failed on numerous occasions. It does give me some hope, however, that uh, a guy like Peter failed once in a while. <laughs> After his ascension, uh, Peter is the rock. He becomes a rock at that point. He stands as a rock. He takes the lead. Uh, he takes the lead in finding a replacement for Judas Iscariot. He leads that, uh, uh, that meeting in Acts 1, 15 through 26. He, is, he, is, he preaches the first sermon of the church in Acts chapter 2, and, and he goes on and, pe- and preaches many more sermons, for example, in Acts uh, 3, 12 through 26, uh, he becomes a, a, a profound preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, preaching the first sermon on the day the church was born. He performs healings, uh, Acts 3, 1 through 9, uh, and in 5, 12 through 16. He stood firm against the Jewish authorities. He, along with, with John, stood and said, we'll do what God says, not what you say. And that's, that's, uh, that was a firm, a firm stand that he took, far different from when he was running and hiding. And he, and, and he, and he, he takes the lead in, delis, um, in disciple, uh, excuse me, in disciplining, uh, s- sending church members in chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, he takes, he takes the lead in that discipline. Incidentally, you know, I, I, we're not going to go into Acts, but that's a, a very significant, uh, a very significant action that took place there. We have this brand new young church. 
And, uh, uh, and of course, we are all saved by grace. And they were too. Ananias and Sapphira were saved by grace. But the standard of God's righteousness is still maintained. And when this new work begins, God establishes sin is punished. Uh, no different than Achan in the Old Testament. It's punished. And, and uh, that's a significant marker. And I'm sure for the early church, it was a significant marker. And quite frankly, when we read it, it should be for us too. Uh, that we keep holy lives before the God we serve. Now I've lost my place. Oh, yeah. Peter, uh, Peter also confronted Simon the magician, telling him that the gift of God wasn't for sale. Acts chapter 8, 20. Peter was the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It was hard for him, but he obeyed God and he did so. In Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, and then again in 18. And then, at the Jerusalem Council, when the discussion of Gentile, what it took for a Gentile to be a Christian, and there were many who said, well, they've got to be a Jew first, uh, Peter, Peter, in his closing statement, at that council said, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Acts 15, 7 through 11. There was some discussion that followed that. Paul got up and spoke, and then it was followed by James making the pronouncement that everybody's saved the same way. It's all by grace. And that was established at the that's really the first first church council meeting. Uh, and Peter took a prominent role in that. After the council, the focus of the book of Acts shifts to Paul, and information about Peter is somewhat sparse at that time, although we'll try to fill in some of the gaps as best we can. Uh, from Paul, we know that Peter visited Antioch in Galatians 2, 11 through 21. And in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 12, Paul speaks of a fraction of Corinth that, that claimed to follow Peter, which suggests but does not prove that Peter may have been in Corinth as well, but we we don't have any biblical evidence of that. And there's no written documents from Corinth that would support that. But, I mean, they could have just claimed to follow him because his name was Peter. But, I, you know, the fact of the matter is it would seem that maybe at least some of them had some connection to Peter is, is the idea, is the idea there. Um, First, uh, First Peter, like most Bi- Bible books, has uh, had uh, the late critics of the uh, of the eighteen hundreds and uh, seventeen and eighteen hundreds come in and, and try to try to argue its uh, validity. Uh, but it's probably one of the most established books of the New Testament. Uh, the strongest argument that they present against it, and we'll just go through it here for a minute because it's, it's just kind of interesting how they do things. There's a whole bunch of other arguments as well but they're none of them have well they don't hold water that's all there is to it but uh this one is kind of interesting because they claim that uh you know the text of scriptures claims that uh they were uh uneducated men they were ignorant uneducated men and they were fishermen from galilee it's kind of you know what could these guys know uh you know uh what what could they possibly know? That's 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 kind of the idea. So they say. So the, their conclusion then is the Greek is too polished for such an individual. 
It's too good. It's too, it's too refined. It's too on, on point is the idea that they, that they, uh, that they want to make here. Um, that I, uh, their idea, their thought is that a, a fisherman whose native tongue was Aramaic could not write this well in Greek. Um, and he would, and why would he have quoted the Septuagint being a Hebrew? You know, that was from, from Palestine. He says, why, why would that happen? However, these charges can be refuted. First, the use of the Septuagint is exaggerated by the critics. He does use it, but it's not exclusive and it's not extensive. Uh, second, the Semitic expressions that are used in Peter are consistent with his background. And third, Galilee, as far back as Isaiah was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee always, or for hundreds of years, had had a very strong Hellenistic influence, and and Greek, along with Aramaic and Hebrew, were spoken in that region, and most of the people who lived in that region were fluent in all three languages. I think we sometimes think of ancient people as not very smart, but they were. They spoke multiple languages. They had to in their day. Um, And Peter, as a businessman who had a fishing business, he would have dealt with people who spoke all three languages. And to be unfluent or to not be fluent in those languages might have been foolish. It's kind of like if you live in Bakersfield and you have a business and you don't speak a couple of languages here, you might cut the amount of business you have. I, I used to bank at Wells Fargo on Panama. And uh, I would go in there, and I thought I was at an inter- I thought I was at a United Nations meeting, because you know I was trying to speak English to somebody, and this lady over here was speaking Spanish, and this guy over here was speaking Punjabi, you know, all in the same bank, you know, all in the same bank, all at the same time. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, you know, that's the way that's the way Galilee was. Uh, you had all three of these languages. Excuse me. All three of these languages spoken in that area, and it, there's no reason to believe that 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 Peter would not have been fluent in those languages in order to cons- or order to to conduct his business in a in a in a profitable manner. Also, Matthew and James are also from Galilee, and both of their books are written in polished Greek. So just because you came from that region doesn't mean you, get, you, don't, you can't handle Greek. That's, that's, that's the bottom line there. And fourth, Peter, uh, Peter spent 30 years traveling amongst Greek-speaking people. He spent 30 years uh, involved with Greek-speaking people. So even if it wasn't as polished when he left Galilee, it probably was by the time he wrote this book. And then, as to Acts 4.13, the meaning behind uneducated and untrained in the context does not mean that Peter was illiterate. It doesn't mean that he was uneducated. It doesn't mean that he didn't know languages. Rather, it's in the context of Jewish temple authorities indicating that he was not rabbinically trained. That's what the indication is. That's what they mean by uneducated. They mean he didn't go to rabbi school. Mm-hmm. That's what they're. 
Incidentally, they didn't understand how Jesus could speak the way he did because he didn't go to rabbi school. That's, that's the bottom line here. The seventh and New Testament writers often used uh, secretaries to help them when they're writing. Paul did, Romans 6, uh, teen, uh, 16, 22, for first, that was supposed to be 1 Thessalonians uh, 3, 17. Uh, and it's, it would seem from the text in 5.12 that Salinas uh, assisted Peter in the writing of this book. This doesn't mean this doesn't have anything to do with inspiration. Peter would have dictated and oversaw what he wrote, and it could have been that he polished up the Greek a little bit if Peter had any flaws in his ability. Certainly he did not. We know that. So those are just some of the things that, that come up. And and I, I just caution you as as hopefully you become... Those of you who haven't, and I think some of you, I know some of you already are, uh, become Bible students and you get into various commentaries, you will find people making all kinds of arguments. Most of them come out of the, the school of higher criticism that took place on the 17 and 1800s. A lot of it came... A lot of it came out of Germany, originated in Germany. It went all over the place. Uh, It's interesting that the same place Martin Luther came out of, Mm -hmm. tire critics came out of. But nevertheless, but nevertheless, nevertheless, you'll run into that kind of stuff. Uh, The stuff is generally answerable. Uh, I I remember early on, uh, Wilhausen, who was a critic of uh, the Pentateuch, basically claimed that uh, Hebrews didn't have a language. So they, Moses couldn't have written those books when he said he wrote them because they didn't have a language. They didn't know how to speak. Of course, I think Wilhausen forgot that where Moses was trained in the schools of Pharaoh, but nevertheless, he had a Ph.D. probably. Uh, but nevertheless, nevertheless, you know, a few years down the road and archaeologists found written documents in Hebrew dating back centuries. So, yeah, they had a written language. They always did. Uh, a very developed and careful written language. And that's why I, I sometimes think that's what Jesus meant when he says, if you don't worship me, the rocks will. Uh, when we were in uh, Caesarea, uh, there, was, there was claimed at one time, <clears throat> there's no evidence of Pontius Pilate ever being the governor of Palestine. <laughs> there's a rock. In Caesarea, it's dated with Pontius Pilate's name on it as the governor of Palestine. You know, they found it in the excavation. So that's that's what happens with these charges. That's why that's why I thought it would be just to bring this one to mind. The Greek here, yeah, Peter's capable, fully capable. There's ample support for the authenticity of First Peter. The earliest support comes from Second Peter, incidentally, where Peter says this is his second letter, Second Peter three twelve. So we know he wrote an earlier one. Uh, the writing of the early church fathers recognized the canonicity of First Peter. Eusebius uh, listed it as an undisputed book. Uh, Polycarp, Arrhenius, uh, Tertullian, uh, Clement of all Alexander, all. Ex- described this book to Peter and quoted from it. Uh, Eusebius of uh, Caesarea, who was lived in the uh, third century, he, he penned, as to the writings of Peter, one of his epistles called the first is acknowledged as genuine, for this was anciently used by ancient fathers in their writings as an undoubted work of the apostle. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's one of the most undisputed books of the New Testament. And it's attested to, incidentally, that list of early church fathers goes down from the dates from the first century through the third. So, uh, you know, all the early church recognized this book came from Peter. <clears throat> Com- uh, commentators have a difference uh, as to who the book was written to. Was it written to, to Jewish Christians or was it written to Gentile Christians? And some of them write at length about showing, you know, all of them come to the same agreement. It was written to both. It included Jews and Gentiles. Some say it was a Jewish congregation with Gentiles. Some say it was a Gentile congregation with Jews. That's where they differ. But just to look at this book in the first instances here, it was a Jew or Gentile. Uh, whatever the case, both a Jew and Gentiles were made up the congregation. Verse, verse 1 tells us that it went to Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All were part of the Roman Empire, and today they make up northern Turkey. If you get a, if you get a ancient map, they're all up in the top part of Turkey. That's where they are. They're all. They're not cities. They're areas. That's so. Uh, kind of keep that in mind. They're 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 areas uh, uh, that are in, in northern Turkey. Uh, some commentators suggest the origin, the names of the areas. Uh, Give us the way that the letter flowed uh, through uh, through uh, through that part of that region of the world, that region of the Roman Empire. Uh, Sylvanus was the one who delivered uh, the letter in 512. We're told that uh, much of the evangelization uh, evangelizing of this area is unknown. It's it's not spoken of. Uh, we do know that Paul ministered in parts of Galatia and Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbid him from going to Bithynia in Acts 16.7, rather turned him and sent him to Macedonia. Uh, The churches in this area, uh, in in this area, uh, not reached by Paul, were likely founded from converts who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. If you go to Acts 2.9, you will find listed there those areas of Jews having come from those areas uh, to the day of Pentecost, and we're at there on the day of Pentecost. So the the suspicion is, or the the idea is, is that those Jews, when they returned home, brought the gospel with them, and that's how the gospel got into those areas, uh, which uh, is very much like how Rome became Christianized. Is Converts of Paul took the gospel there. You realize the the book of Romans is written to uh, is written to Rome because Rome had never had an apostle go there, and and Paul wrote a systematic theology basically off of the top of his head. First eight chapters. That's what they are. Uh, that's that's the that's the idea here. That's the idea here. Is that is that these new believers who probably then spent some time in Jerusalem with the early church and under uh, under the uh, care of the apostles then took that gospel back to these regions that's that would seem to be the uh, that would seem to be that would seem to be the case peter may have traveled in the in the in the area 
but there is no uh, there is no direct evidence uh, to uh, to support that idea. We we don't know that. We really don't know much about Peter's travels uh, other than what Paul told us. We know he traveled. Peter told Paul tells us that, and we know that he traveled to Antioch. But beyond that, we really don't know, have a lot of uh, information about his travels because Luke followed Paul, and after the Jerusalem Council, he was with Paul, and they separated, and and they didn't build on each other's work. They went to different places. So, but we don't have the record uh, for Paul. But he goes on to say, he goes on to say in verse one, he makes this statement uh, in 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 verse one. He says, "Elect exiles of the dispersion." Uh, basically, that is a very Jewish reference. That's a, an extremely Jewish reference. Uh, the Jews in the Old Testament were God's elect. And the dispersion refers to the Babylonian captivity. Because the Babylonians had an interesting way of doing things. They conquered a land. Uh, they, were, they came in and they conquered, say, land A, B, and C. I used to have a... Uh, when I went to college, I had a, a class in, in uh, uh, business law, and the, uh, the professor always used examples A, B, and C, and Mr. C was S-E-A. <laughs> That's the way he put it on the board. Until one day, one smart aleck in the class, not me, said, said, said it looked like Mr. C got washed out of that deal. Then it got changed to Mr. S-E-E. But anyway, <laughs> we're just going A, B, and C, okay? Uh, but at, at any rate, at any rate... Uh, at any rate, um, they would take all the citizens of country A and divide them up into country B and C. They'd take the citizens of country B and divide them up between A and C, and C between A and B. That way you broke up the continuity. You broke up the relationships. You broke up their clinging to nationality. And that's how they controlled people. So when they took Judah and Benjamin, when they took the final, the final sweep through, when Nebuchadnezzar came through and took them, that's exactly what he did. He dispersed them throughout the Babylonian Empire in various places. That's how we wind up with, with Jews in places like Bithynia and Cappadocia. And Rome, for that matter, and on and on and on, because they spread them out. That's what they did. And so that was a name, the dispersia, was a name that referred to the Jews who were spread out, who were, who were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar out of, out of Judah and spread throughout the Babylonian Empire. You know, that's, and of course, we've been studying at night about the return of some of those, but as you know, only a, a small portion came back. And, and likewise, in, in the days of Jesus and in the days of Peter and Paul in the New Testament, uh, Jews were spread all over the world. And so that's a very, very, uh, very Jewish-sounding uh, phrase. And then to, uh, to 12, also he, he says to conduct, conduct yourselves among the Gentiles honorably, uh, which also would appear to be uh, a, a Jewish phase. Uh, 
And Galatians 2.7 tells us that Peter was known as the apostle to the Jews. All of this kind of lends to the support of a, a Jewish readership, yet other passages have a more Gentile view to them. One uh, fourteen says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which would be a more Gentile appearing verse. And, and, and uh, conform to a lot of things Paul said to Gentiles. Uh, it says, uh, then in, uh, in one eight it says, Ransom from the fruit, fruit ways inherited from your forefathers. Once again, kind of a, a Gentile phrase. And in 2, 9, and 10, He, write, he, he, he writes the whole passage, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a people of his own possession, that you may claim the connect, uh, excellences of he who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he applies this Old Testament passage of the call of Israel now to the Gentile world, actually, in that verse. And then in 3 and in 4, 3 and 4, he writes... He writes, for the, the time, <clears throat> for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, uh, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are not surprised when, the, when, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Well, that's going to talk about some of the persecution that the church faced. It also has a very Gentile tone. The problem then becomes, how do we define Gentiles? The New Testament tends to define Gentiles not as non-Jews, but as non-believers. So, ultimately, he's talking to the whole church, I think, as we get to this text. And we'll talk about that when we get into the text. But, but I, I think the, the idea here is... The idea here is it's best to see this congregation made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the letter, and, and we know from Galatians, the book of Galatians. What happened in the book of Galatians? We have Jews and Gentiles in the same church. And we have the Judaizers coming in trying to drive everybody to the to the wanting wanting Gentiles to be circumcised to meet the Mosaic law all the ordinances of the Mosaic law they're doing the same thing with the Jews go back to it in fact even Peter himself succumbs and goes to goes to the um, at Antioch goes to the Gentile table I mean goes to the Jewish table mm-hmm. and other and even Barnabas follows him and Paul gets in their face about what do you think you're doing. So, Gentile probably is best understood in the New Testament as anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. That's, they're the ones who are outside. That's the idea. Those that are outside. So, the book is written to both. And, and we, we know that we have believers in all, these, in all of these communities who are both Jewish and Gentile. Some of the communities may be more predominantly Jewish because they were founded by Jews. Some of them may be more... Uh, the the ones in the southern ones where Paul came came to may have been more Gentile because there were more Gentiles in them. I don't know that, and neither does anybody else. The fact of the matter is, both were in these communities and in these churches. Then the next question is Babylon. Because in 5.13 he's going to write, because it's where did the letter come from? Where was Paul when he wrote the letter? Excuse me, Peter. Where was Peter when he wrote the letter? 
uh, 5.13 says, She who is in Babylon. The question then is, where is Babylon located? Uh, and, and where is Peter? What is Peter's residence at the time of writing this, uh, this letter? There are three possibilities uh, in, Old Te- in New Testament times. The first one is Babylon on the Nile. And there are those who adhere to that. There is a community in Egypt that was named Babylon. Um, basically, it was little more than a military outpost. There was some civilian there, but it was basically a military outpost. And some claim that Peter was there, that he, you know, that he went into this secluded area to write. Um, it doesn't make much sense that a powerhouse team like Peter, Silvinus, and Mark would go to a place like that. It, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And there is absolutely no evidence that that's where he was or that he was ever down in that region. So that one is pretty much rejected offhand by most. The second, and this one has some pretty strong support because basically the natural reading of the text would suggest this idea that it's Babylon and Mesopotamia. Uh, the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar, the, Nab- the Babylon of the Babylonian uh, Empire, uh, that it's that Babylon, uh, that he was there, and that's where he writes from. Once again, there's no evidence that Peter was ever there. And this, at this time, while it was once a great capital of a great empire, basically was a very small community with very few residents. And it again is kind of an unlikely place for Peter to have traveled to. It's possible, and there are many commentators that, that tend to think it, it, that it came from Babylon and Mesopotamia. The third one is that it's a code name for, Roman, for Rome. Um, there's a lot of evidence that they offer up for this. For this. It's, a, it's, a name, it's a name for Rome. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. Rome of Peter's day reflected the idolatry and sin that would be found in the Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18. Uh, Peter would have, if he was in Rome writing this letter, would have been extremely careful not to endanger the believers in Rome if if the letter came into the hand of Roman authorities and would have camouflaged the location. The only problem with uh, this option is the symbolic use of Babylon was a, minist- uh, was a mystery revealed by John in Revelation 17.5. So it's kind of awkward uh, because of that verse. It, it doesn't necessarily preclude it, but it does give some pause uh, to think that way. Likely it is Rome. We can't prove that. We don't know that. Uh, the only thing he says about the letter is it's from Babylon. If you want to take Babylon and, the Meso- and Mesopotamia as the, uh, as the place where he wrote it, because that's the natural reading of the text, I'm not going to argue with you, but I tend to think it was probably Rome. And we're going to talk, talk about some of the dates that, that go around this as, as, we, as we move on from here. It was probably written, it was probably written from, from Rome. The date of the writing would appear to be before the official Roman persecution under Nero, which began shortly after a fire in the summer of, of 64 AD. Uh, there's no references to martyrdom in this, in this text. Um, 
which would have been associated with the official persecution of Rome. And the probably the best date for this book is 63 A.D. Now we're going to talk a little bit about some some of the history uh, that went on around this this period of time. In 64 A.D., the Emperor Nero had a had a plan, a massive. Uh, redevelopment plan for uh, for for Rome and his idea of eminent domain was simply burn down what I want to rebuild and he set fire to the city unfortunately for him the fire got out of control his intent was to burn the Jews out who were a pain in his neck the fire burned out the Jew, or no, his, was, his intention was the fire to stop before it got to the Jews so he could blame the Jews, excuse me. I, I got things backwards here for a minute. It, it, to stop, the, 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 it was a certain part of the city he wanted out and he wanted to rebuild to his own glory. And uh, he uh, set fire and the fire got out of control and he burned out the Jews. Well, you can't blame somebody that got burned out. You know, it's, it's kind of hard, you know. But guess where the fire stopped? where the Christians lived. That's where it stopped. So, okay, we'll blame the Christians. So in the summer of 64 AD, uh, Nero began the official, or shortly after that, the official persecution of Christians. This letter has to be written before that date, obviously, because it's not mentioned there. Secondly, some other things about this date. Um, Nero died in 68 AD. He committed suicide. Uh, so Peter had to be written before 64, likely, likely in 63. Uh, Peter was not in Rome, probably at the earliest he could have been in Rome in 60 AD. The reason I say that is because Paul was there before that in, pr- in prison. Mm-hmm. And if Peter was there, Paul probably would have mentioned it, you would have think. But he doesn't. He doesn't. There's no greeting from Peter. There's nothing about, because all these people were in Rome saluting, but Peter's not among them. So probably the earliest date Peter could have been in Rome is 60. So the likelihood is we got a window between 60 and 64, so probably about 63 is when this letter was written. That's, that's kind of the history behind it. Uh, Paul apparently was taken to, to his first imprisonment in, uh, in uh, 57 AD. That's when they took him from Jerusalem on that perilous journey that he took to get to Rome. You ever read the text about taking him there? The Romans were taking no chances. They put they put a battalion around him. They put they put an infantry unit with him, an artillery unit with him, and a cavalry unit with him to get him to the boat. It's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But anyway, but anyway, that's that that's where we have to date the book. We have to date the book that it probably probably was around sixty three A.D. Tradition, church tradition, places Peter in Rome. But it's church tradition, not biblical um, 
biblical indication. And tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Now, very likely that is where he was martyred, and uh, that's very likely what happened. Jesus predicted it in John uh, 21, verses 18 through 19, where he told Peter that when, uh, when he's talking to Peter uh, after the event of his restoration, where he's confronted him, confronted him about his uh, failure on three fronts, and he, he's uh, asked him if he, if he loves him three times, and Peter affirm, makes his affirmation. He then tells Peter, here's your fate. You're going to, when you're old, you're going to be stretched out. That's indicating... That indicated crucifixion. Uh, that, the meaning of the phrase was crucifixion. And so, Peter, Peter. The tradition is that Peter wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be crucified in the same manner as the Lord, so he was crucified upside down. Can't prove that. There's no biblical thing that tells us that. But that is the tradition that has been church passed down through the church since the first century. So, that probably occurred somewhere around 67 A.D. Could have been before that, but about that time. Once again, it's hard to date because Paul was in Mamertine prison probably about that time, and he was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. That we know. That we know. So those are kind of the dates that surround this book to give you a little bit of the history into it. The persecution will begin after 64, after the summer of 64 AD, after, after, after Rome is burned by Nero. And then it will go on for two centuries thereafter, off and on. Incidentally, just as a, a backdrop to this, the persecution was very heavy in Rome, very intense in Rome. Uh, Nero like to dip Christians in wax and then use them for candles in his courtyard or send them to the arena. Those were, those were his sports. Um, in the Roman colonies that were strictly Roman, persecution was very strong. In the other captured nations that were under Roman control, to lesser degrees, sometimes very little, but uh, but it did spread throughout the Roman Empire, through the, Rome, the the empire. But there is no evidence of any of that going on in First Peter. So we we put First Peter prior to the Roman persecution. There's no official persecution going on at that juncture. So that's where we are in the book. That's where we are in the history of things. That's who Peter is. And that's where we come. As we come to the book, just to to give you a little bit of an overview of the book, Peter states his purpose in writing in 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 five twelve that they would stand firm in the true tra- uh, in the true grace of God. That's his purpose in writing this book. He writes to these believers to tell them that you would stand firm in grace. That's that's what he wants them to do. That's the outcome he wants from this book. Um, the letter explains God's purpose in trials as related to salvation one through twelve. He wants to provoke the readers to live holy lives and to show love, growth 
and a strong testimony in 1, 13 through 2, 12. He calls them to submission to civil authorities in, in 2, 13 through 17. Servants to masters in 2, 18 through 25. Husbands and wives in 3, 18. He presents the proper attitude towards suffering. And understand there was suffering going on. There was persecution going on. But it generally was from local communities, not not organized Roman persecution. And and he speaks to that in chapters three in chapter three nine through chapter four nineteen. He gives guidelines for the operation of how elders are to, to work in five one through four. He calls the the congregations to humility in five five through seventeen. And then he and he gives a warning about the tactics of Satan in five eight through eleven, and his final greeting is in five twelve through four. And that's the book we're going to be looking at over. And I gave you an outline, but this outline is not the outline I intend to teach from. This is just a uh, a major overview outline. I'm obviously going to break. If those of you who are with me with Hebrews know I'm not going to be taking passages that big. Uh, so uh, we'll be breaking that down into paragraph form as we go through probably as we go through the book but I gave you this as just kind of a an overview outline uh, first one is the, the salutation which we dealt with today and then uh, we have the destiny of the Christians in, in 1, 2 through 2, 10 which includes the plan of salvation, the products of salvation the purpose of salvation and we have the duty of the Christian uh, is the second part and, it's, and it has, deals with submission to the state to the household, to the family and then we have the discipline of the Christian and it, it deals with suffering as a citizen as a Christian, as a shepherd and as a soldier and then the final the uh, the uh, final uh, final conclusion in 512 uh, 12 through 14 and that brings us up to the hour so I filled the time <laughs> at any rate I hope uh, you will all be with us and I hope you enjoy the journey first Peter is an exciting book and uh, uh, it was written by a man who lived it so uh, I, I hope you will you will uh, you will uh, enjoy the ride. Any uh, any comments or questions this morning? Yeah. Who is she in the verse? The she who is at Babylon. You mind if we wait till we get there? <laughs> no. Uh, my second question is: You said it. Uh, the, you said that Peter was crucified upside down, and we knew that through. Um, that's church history. Yeah, it's church tradition. Did you know that he was certainly crucified, or just well, that's what Jesus said would happen. So we take that for. You know, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> sorry, one more question. And um, so you were saying that at, um, people were like saying that Jesus is more reliable because Peter wouldn't use the Septuagint. Can you remind me what the Septuagint is? Septuagint is Septu, Septu, Okay, yeah, that's a good question. The Septuagint is the is the Hebrew Bible in Greek. They took the Hebrew Bible and they translated it into Greek. Why did they do that? Because of Nebuchadnezzar, he spread Jews all over his empire. And in those places, they spoke Greek. These people lost their Hebrew. They were no longer able to read their Hebrew scriptures. So just like you, I'll bring my Hebrew Bible if you'd like me to. And if any of you, I can't read it to you. But if any of you would like to, Pastor Steve probably could. But, but, uh, uh, but, uh, uh, or at least some of it. But if any of you want to try to read it, I'll be happy to let you. I also have a Greek Bible if you want to read it. Uh, But uh, we translated it into English so we could read it. 
So that's what they did. They translated the Hebrew text into Greek because that was the main spoken language of the day. And many of these Hebrews had lost their ability to, to, to read and understand Hebrew, so they translated it into Greek. And, that's, and it's called the Septuagint or the LXX. In what year did they do that? Oh, I didn't. I don't have that in my memory. <laughs> it was before uh, the birth of Christ. Oh yeah, it was probably it was probably probably uh, my guess would be the late 600s BC or early 500s BC, some somewhere back in there. So why, maybe a little later. So why didn't they think that Peter would read that? Because he lived in Israel. Because he lived in Palestine. And they're trying to, because critics look for any little thing they can jab at. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. If your job is to criticize, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Find things to criticize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Off of that, would Jesus have used this opportunity? Most of his quotes are Hebrew, uh, but he dealt in Palestine. There are times he spoke Aramaic uh, because that was also a a, uh, um, uh, a common language. Most of Matthew was probably written in Aramaic. Uh, at least a, a portion of it was. I don't know that there's any reference where he spoke in Greek, but obviously he could have spoken any language he wanted to speak. But I don't know that the, off the top of my head, I can't Honestly, answer your question. But he, but there's no instance where he quoted the Septuagint that I can that I can think of when he quoted Old Testament. Let's close. Lord God, we thank you this morning as we uh, as we have begun our journey through the book of First Peter, and we we thank you for Peter. We thank you for for the legacy that he has left to us, and we thank you for the words that you inspired to be written to us through him. And Father, we just ask that as we study this book once again, it would just draw us closer to you. That it would make our our worship stronger and our service better. That we would honor you in all that we do. And we thank you for this time. We thank you for this group. And we ask Father for your blessing on Pastor David as he brings the message this morning uh, for, for Jay Street as he brings message tonight. Uh, give them voice. Give them clarity. May your spirit guide them in their messages and may your spirit guide us in our listening that we once again would be drawn closer to you. We would worship you and we would praise you all the more. Bless Pastor Darren and, and the musicians as they, as they lead us in music that we would praise you in song. We praise you in prayer that all that we do today and every day would be to your glory and to your everlasting praise. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.